There's a very fine line that one walks as an audiobook narrator. You are reading someone else's words, and it can be quite intimate if it's their story. But at the same time, I am not Condoleezza Rice, and while I am reading her words, I'm not taking on her persona. I have a very different leadership style than Dr. Rice. Not only is she diplomatic by training, but she's diplomatic in style. And while I think I am also diplomatic, I am much more aggressive. And so I had to be very careful in my reading of Dr. Rice's personal stories to make sure that my style was not coming out in my voice, because that's not Dr. Rice. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, Grace Angela Henry, actor, audiobook narrator, world traveler, a voice for all reasons. First, the news. I met Grace Angela Henry through Historic Huguenot Street, the French and Dutch colonial enclave in New Paltz, New York. There we were the only two black people not directly involved in the event. What brings you here? What brings you here? We both, we soon learned, have Dutch ancestry. Even more importantly, I discovered her to be a true Renaissance woman. Four careers had brought her to that meeting day and her current life as an actor, a voice for all reasons. The audiobook voice, notably, of Dr. Condoleezza Rice and others. We began our interview with a question both simple and complicated. Who is Grace Angela Henry? Grace Angela Henry is the firstborn child of four children, my father, Carl Eugene Flemister, and my deceased mother, Graciela R. Flemister, born in New York City, raised there, and then started traveling. I got the travel bug. <laughs> From New York being an international city, where did you head first? My first trip out of the country was actually a family trip. My family used to uh, take long summer vacations. Uh, my father wanted us to see as many of the 50 states as possible before we all went off to college and went our separate ways. And some of those trips included uh, vacations in Canada. So Canada was actually the first uh, other country that I went to. But in high school, I had the amazing opportunity to travel with my Latin class to Greece. It was an ancient Greece tour. And it was the tour that really gave me the travel bug. I wanted to learn about other cultures and how other people lived. And it was extraordinary and it definitely affected me. So first of all, what school were you going to that at that point would have taken you to Greece? I went to the Ethical Culture Fieldston School in New York City. And um, in eighth grade, the head of the classics department came to speak to all of the students and said, if you're interested in words and you're interested in uh, language, especially the English language, you should take Latin. And I thought, well, I'm interested in words. I'll, I'll try it. And so I started Latin. My first semester was abysmal. And then something clicked. I got it and I fell in love with, uh, with Latin. And one had to take two years of Latin in order to get full credit. And the second year, uh, during spring break, one had the opportunity to take a trip either to Rome or to Greece. And my year, it was Greece. Exciting. Tell us about that first trip abroad and what it meant to you. You know, and not only that trip abroad, but what it said, what you learned from it as an African-American girl leaving the country and going to another environment. It was um, eye-opening. <laughs> Certainly other places in the United States that my family and I had traveled, um, those trips were also eye-opening. I certainly remember um, during family meetings before the trips, my parents explaining to us about the racism in some of the states where we would be and how that would affect us, such as there will not be bathrooms necessarily that we will be able to use along the way. We will not be able to eat in the restaurants, um, and we will not be able, we will not be allowed into the motels. So we camped, and um, their campground of America accepts everybody. So there are KOAs all over the United States, and of course the national parks. 
Um, and those are absolutely gorgeous. And of course, I accept everyone. And we have camped in many of the national parks across the country. But going overseas was a different kind of experience as a black little girl. Um, First of all, I was uh, uh, 15 years old, so I was in a period of life where I was discovering myself and who I wanted to be and who I wanted to associate with. Um, and so going to another country, another culture, another language, different food, transportation being different was a very interesting experience. I think what when it really hit me was on a little cruise ship that we took to visit the different islands. And I probably was the only black person on that little ship. Um, but certainly I do remember being treated very differently by the staff on the ship. Uh, they kept looking for, you know, they kept thinking that I must be the child of, uh, of somebody's staff person, perhaps somebody's handmaid or, uh, or valet, that I must be their daughter. They kept looking for, well, where's your mother? Where are your parents? And it took them a little while to realize I am part of this class uh, trip, have paid an awful lot of money to get here um, and need to be treated the same as everyone else. My teacher picked up on it and uh, he must have had some sort of conversation with the powers that be in the background because suddenly I was being treated very differently without my having actually said anything. That's an interesting point because in general, we normally think of across the board being treated better, especially at a certain in certain periods of time, by just simply crossing the border and leaving the country. Yes. And, and we have to be honest about that. Um, but here you are in Greece, and were you getting that same level of, you know, aggression? Were you getting that same level of, you know, being set aside? What was the feeling that was being projected? I don't know that I would have interpreted it as aggression at the time, but more often than not, I was simply invisible. Mm. How did you get to Greece? Did you make any other stops along the way? Was it a direct trip? It was, a yes, a direct trip. We flew over, started in Athens, uh, did some land touring, and then had this island hopping cruise before returning home. So from that trip, from that experience as a 15-year-old girl, do you think that it shaped your quest for other experiences at that point? Or, I mean, because for some people it could shut them down. What did it do for you? For me, it absolutely, as I said, I got the bug. I was bitten by the bug. I wanted to learn about other places and other people as well. I made a little scrapbook uh, when I came home and it had, I had collected not only postcards from the different places where we had visited, but, and of course, photographs that I had taken, but I had also collected uh, chewing gum. The chewing gum there was very different than it is here in the States. <laughs> and I thought that was fascinating. That is fascinating. So I, <laughs> so I saved some pieces and put it in the, in the scrapbook. Um, and I think there were some other things that uh, that uh, I wanted to remember. And so I put them in the scrapbook as well. I finally did throw that thing away uh, when I went off to college. But that was definitely um, the trip that made me want to learn about other people and how they lived and how they behaved. And what was your biggest question about those other people? I think my my biggest question, particularly as a 15-year-old, was how they treated teenagers. Um, what were kids my age allowed to do or not allowed to do in Greece? What were their, what were their families like? Um, what were the relationships between children and their parents, children and other adults? And also, what was the role of an an oldest child in a Greek family. Mm. We did have the opportunity to meet a couple of families. And while we didn't share a language, um, I guess I got um, a little bit of a feel of that. 
that is a question I never would have thought to ask. You're talking to an only child. Mm. So um, being in the position of how the families work and then how the oldest child is treated. So tell, tell me how the families worked abroad as opposed to here and how the, own, the eldest, <laughs> what, <laughs> what that meant for you. Well, certainly um, I was able to figure out with the, the minimal interaction that I had um, that things were somewhat similar. Children were expected to participate in the running of the household, especially the girls, regardless of what number child they might be. So there was no out. You didn't get it out there. <laughs> I wasn't able to come home and say, yeah, but mommy, in Greece, they do it this way. And I think we should try it. No way. <laughs> Uh, but the other thing I learned too, or at least that I seemed to pick up, was that um, eldest, a lot is expected of eldest children. They are supposed to be examples to the younger children, um, and certainly they are held to a very high standard. So this mantle of being the eldest child, what has that meant for you going forward? It certainly was very much the reason that I was a leader always in school and in all of the workplaces where I have been. Um, it's something that comes naturally to me that I think because as the eldest, uh, that was expected of me to be an example for my siblings. Um, and so that's a leadership role. And that has been a very easy role for me to take on naturally wherever I've been. Speaking of leadership, you have, in your career as an actor, you have been the voice of many people, but you've also voiced audio books that are memoirs and biographies, particularly one of Condoleezza Rice. Mm -hmm. From your growing up and that leadership experience, was there an intersection that you felt with Condoleezza Rice, and what would you, what did you pull away from it that you and your performance wanted to make sure we got as an audience? There definitely was an intersection. There were things in the personal stories and vignettes that Dr. Rice shares in her book that I related to that definitely had to do with leadership. And it's no surprise to me that she has had the leadership roles that she has. But what I did have to be careful about, there's a very fine line that one walks as an audiobook narrator. On the one hand, you are reading someone else's words and it can be quite intimate if it's their story, their personal story. But at the same time, one, I, I am not I am not Condoleezza Rice, and while I am reading her words, I am not taking her on. I'm not taking on her persona. So one of the things I had to be careful about, I have a very different leadership style than Dr. Rice. I am very aggressive <laughs> and very uh, in one's face, and it's uh, something that I have learned to rein in. Dr. Rice, on the other hand, not only is she diplomatic by training, but she's diplomatic in, uh, in style. And while I think I am also diplomatic, um, I am much more aggressive. And so I had to be very careful in my reading of Dr. Rice's personal stories and um, the vignettes about some of her diplomatic trips to make sure that my style was not coming out in my voice because that's not Dr. Rice. Does that make sense? This is from Condoleezza Rice's book, Democracy, The Long Road to Freedom. Earlier in the day, in response to one of my colleagues comment that there was no tradition of democracy in either Iraq or Afghanistan, I asked pointedly, what precisely was the German democratic tradition before 1945? Would that be the ill-fated experiment with the Kaiser, Bismarck, Hitler's election? Germany had experienced the enlightenment, but obviously democratic values didn't exactly take root. To be fair, my response had been provoked by a not too thinly veiled suggestion that Americans were naive about the prospects for the spread of democracy. I'd rather be naive than cynical, I had thought to myself. That evening on the canal, I tried to soften what I had said, explaining that American democracy had taken a long time to mature. 
The American Constitution was born of a compromise between slaveholding and non-slaveholding states that counted my ancestors as three-fifths of a man, I explain. My father couldn't register to vote in Birmingham in 1952, and now Colin Powell is Secretary of State, and I am National Security Advisor. People can learn to overcome prejudices and govern themselves in democratic institutions. My colleagues seemed a bit taken aback by the personal nature of my policy comment. Perhaps they didn't think my race gave me a different perspective on democracy's challenges and its opportunities. That was a really telling clip, because in that clip, what I'm hearing is the intersection of both women with this amazing international experience, both women in a leadership position, both women, African-American women, and both women alluding whether directly or indirectly, but never forgetting the segregated past to which yes. they were both exposed. Yes. When we come back, more with our guest, Grace Angela Henry. We're back with our guest, Grace Angela Henry of Voice for All Reasons. How did you come up with that moniker for yourself? I wanted to make sure that I didn't exclude any possible ways of using my spoken voice. I don't sing, not even in the shower, but I did want to make sure that it included different modes of using the spoken word, the spoken voice. How did you come to this fourth career as an actor? I was listening to someone being interviewed on the radio and she said something that I'd heard many times before, but never really done anything about. She said, I wish people would do what they're passionate about because then it's almost not like work. And I thought, well, gosh, what, what does that actually mean for me? So I sat down with a piece of paper and I began making lists because I'm a list person. And then I thought books on tape, which back in the day, that's what they were called and that's how they were produced. And I thought, that's it. I love books on tape. I, I would love that job. And I decided I needed to research and find out how one could get into that business. And in the process of doing that, I began thinking back over my life and realized I had been reading aloud for the pure joy of it all of my life. When in first grade and second grade, the teacher would have each student read a sentence or two, go around the room. I recall that there were teachers who would allow me to read a whole paragraph until some goody two-shoes student would say, Miss, she's reading more than one sentence. And I remembered in eighth grade when we read A Tale of Two Cities, same thing. And one day the teacher pulled me aside and she said, Angela, you have a beautiful reading voice. I could listen to you read the telephone book. That was eighth grade. And then I thought back to when I was in college, my volunteer work, because in my family, we have all volunteered, my volunteer work was with the Boston Guild for the Blind. I was reading aloud and loving it. So in the end, it's no surprise that this turns out to be my job of passion, shall we say. Then how did you get to your first career in education? I had always loved children. I was a, a wonderful babysitter. I was told by the people who hired me and I enjoyed it very much and thought that I would like to work with children. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to have a, a special project my senior year in high school where I worked, uh, volunteered, I didn't work, I volunteered uh, as a classroom aide in a school for children with special needs and decided I was interested in uh, children with autism. So I looked at colleges that had programs that I thought would give me that kind of um, education and chose Tufts University because of their Elliott Pearson Child Center. Uh, I stayed there the four years, absolutely adored it. It was in fact the right school for me and eventually went on to get my master's in education. Began working in schools and then actually started a nonprofit in New York City working with families of color who were interested in independent school education for their children but not sure how to go about it 
and independent schools who are interested in increasing the racial diversity in their lower schools, but not sure how to go about it. And the program uh, was called Early Steps. It's still existing. That then led to my next career, but I was in that career for quite some time and, and loved it. Your next career being the one that took you to West Africa? I was working for CARE. I was very much interested in learning about culture and um, a different way of living and also a, a very different climate. Um, I was sometimes on the equator, sometimes very near the equator, sometimes on the coast, sometimes in desert. It was fascinating. And when people say to me, oh, what an amazing experience that must have been. Did you have culture shock? I tell them, no, I went there completely open to whatever was going to happen and whatever I might discover. The culture shock was actually when I came back to the United States. The world had gone on without me for four years. New York City, where I had grown up, was very different. I had lost my street smarts. Uh, I had grown up in New York, but I could not really say anymore that I was a New Yorker. Um, I very much had become an expat, and I had a foot in both places. An expat willing? An expat by accident. What did that mean to your identity as an African-American person to be an expat by accident? What did you feel about yourself that was the same or was different or what happened to you? I went to the continent very open with no expectations, but very excited. And I didn't think I had any preconceived notions. I didn't think I was going over with any expectations. But of course, there were some there without my realizing it until they hit me straight in the face. I had an experience early on with uh, a family, a local family. Baby was crying, and I asked to hold this baby, and the baby's crying got even worse. And the mother said to me, oh, it's because she's not used to white people. <laughs> and I didn't say anything. I handed the baby back. The baby eventually settled down. Um, but I did confer with another African-American woman who had lived in the country. This was in Cote d'Ivoire. She said, oh, yes, Africans do not necessarily consider African-Americans to be black. And when they use the word white in their language, whether it's their local language or in French, really more often than not, they mean stranger, a foreigner. Mm -hmm. um, and this family... Uh, has not had a lot of interaction with foreigners of any color. Um, so she probably more meant foreigner than your actual skin color. The more experience I had with Africans, the more I began to understand that, first of all, they saw me as a foreigner, as an expat, as an American. They might then also see me as an African-American if they'd had any information or experience with the United States and African-Americans. I was going to ask you whether or not in being on the continent that first time or perhaps in trips since, if you ever felt that you found where you might have been from. Yes. I was visiting with some friends, some African-American friends, and they had a, a little cocktail party um, to welcome me and to introduce me to some of their friends. And a woman from Liberia came up to me and, to introduce herself. And when I said my last name, my maiden name is Flemister, she said, oh, I know, I know your, your family. And I said, you do? And she said, yes, you're from Liberia, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm from the United States. And she said, oh, well, then I know your cousins in Liberia. And there ensued a very interesting conversation. I did have some inkling that perhaps there were some uh, family members of mine who went to Africa and uh, went to Liberia and helped 
establish the country? And she said, oh, yes, You're, there are lots of Flemisters and they were uh, a founding family. And unfortunately with the social um, upheavals and unrest, some of them who were um, in the political system, senators and that sort of thing, unfortunately got assassinated. But oh yes, there have been Flemisters in Liberia since the beginning. Have you done any other research on either side of your family? I did a little bit of research also on my father's side. Um, in high school, uh, I got a, a message from the head of the art department to please come to his office, which I did. And um, he said, I want you to have a look at this slide from the art history class. And he projected a slide on the wall and it was uh, a self-portrait um, of a, a, a man with a mustache and a goatee kind of beard and stern looking. And he said, does this man look familiar to you? And I said, no, and I'm not in your art history class. And he said, no, I know that, but does he look like anybody in your family? And I said, no, he's white. And the teacher said, I know that, but look at him. Does he look like anyone in your family? Just ignore the, you know, the beard and all that stuff. Look at the nose, look at the eyes, look at the cheekbones. And I said, maybe, I mean, he kind of looks like somebody off of a cigar box. You know, he had the Van Dyke beard and the mustache and the stern face and all that. And I said, well, he kind of looks like my great, great grandfather. He said, this person's last name is De Flamink. If you translate that name, it basically is Flemister. It just means somebody who is from Flanders or who is Flemish. And that's what Flemister means. Do you think you could be related to him? And I said, well, I don't know. So we wrote a postcard to the museum where this painting was hanging. And they wrote a postcard back to us saying that, yes, there was some, uh, some information about his family and um, some connection to the United States, but that we would have to come to the museum to do that research because we couldn't do this by postcard. Of course, back then there was no internet um, and we certainly weren't going to do it by telephone. So he said, I really encourage you to, to, do, to do this research and find out if he is related to you. So I took that information back to my father. We, uh, our family, um, had relatives in uh, Georgia, which is where his father was from. And we went down to visit. And in fact, I got to meet the grandchildren. Let's see if I get my, my generations correct. Grandchildren of this gentleman who was white and who in fact had married his slave, which was illegal. Um, but he owned the chain gang and apparently was able to get away with a lot of things. Uh, their children were free. He never bought nor gave freedom to his wife. Um, and we have photographs of them. I cannot remember whether they are daguerreotypes or tintypes, but my father has them. They're quite large, quite beautiful. And in fact, that my great-great-grandfather does look like the painter de Flamenc. Wow. Wow. My father took us to Georgia, as I explained, to meet these family members and to, to see the place where our family had come from. It was now mostly a golf course, but the family did still own a small piece of land with the big house. This big house was the home of the plantation owner, Flemister. Uh, his son, however, the one who married his slave and owned the chain gang, had a small, had built a small house on the side. That house was still extant when we visited, as well as the big house. We were never invited into the big house, but we did, we did go into a small house on the side and sat at the feet of descendants of this slave owner. Um, we were quite young, so there's not a whole lot that I remember. I remember them more than I remember things that they said. Uh, but I do remember very much my father talking about, this, these are our family members, this is our land, and this is where we come from. He wanted to learn more and asked uh, our family members about the library. And he was told, there's a colored library, 
and there's a white library. You don't go to the white library. You go to the colored library. So of course, my father went straight to the white library. <laughs> and he said to the librarian that he was interested in town records. And she told him she would get them um, and that he would have to sit in her eyesight um, and he could take notes, but he certainly couldn't take any of the materials anywhere. So he opened up some town history books and found our family history right there. Wade in the water, God's gonna trouble the water. Grace Angela Henry conjures the voice of Harriet Tubman, legendary Shiro who made 19 undercover raids all in the dead of winter to personally rescue hundreds of people from bondage. It wasn't me. It was the Lord. I always told him, I trust you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me. And he always did. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. I was the conductor of the Underground Railroad for eight years. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. I've heard Uncle Tom's cabin read, and I tell you Mrs. Stowe's pen hasn't begun to paint what slavery is as I have seen it at the far south. I've seen the real thing, and I don't want to see it on no stage or in no theater. In my dreams and visions, I seem to see a line. And on the other side of that line were green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white ladies who stretched out their arms to me over the line. But I could not reach them nohow. I always fell before I got to the line. I think slavery is the next thing to hell. If a person would send another into bondage, he would, it appears to me, be bad enough to send him into hell if he could. I grew up like a neglected weed, ignorant of liberty, having no experience of it. I never had anything good, no sweet, no sugar, and that sugar right by me did look so nice. And my mistress's back was turned to me while she was fighting with her husband, so I just put my fingers in the sugar bowl to take one lump. And maybe she heard me, for she turned and saw me. The next minute, she had the rawhide down. I had two sisters carried away in a chain gang. One of them left two children. We were always uneasy. My Lord, he called me. He called me by the thunder. I had crossed the line. I was free. But there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land. Now I've been free, I know what a dreadful condition slavery is. I have seen hundreds of escaped slaves, but I never saw one who was willing to go back and be a slave. I had reasoned this out in my mind. I would fight for my liberty so long as my strength lasted. And if the time came for me to go, the Lord would let them take me. I can't die but once. There are two things I've got a right to, and these are death or liberty. One or the other I mean to have. It appears like my heart goes flutter, flutter. And then they may say, peace, peace, as much as they like. I know it's going to be war. Never wound a snake kill it. Every great dream begins with a dreamer. Always remember, you have within you the strength, the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars to change the world. I'm so glad trouble don't last always. I'm so glad 
When we come back, more with our guest, Grace Angela Henry. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show with our guest, Grace Angela Henry of Voice for All Reasons. A friend of mine, a wonderful playwright and actor, director, Bill Gunn, used to say that there were three words that were critical to our work as artists, and he said that the three words were identity, memory, and eternity. Wow. And I heard those words coming through your story. So I'm asking you, in that spirit, what all of this has told you about yourself, your identity, memory, eternity. I picture my identity as a magnet that has been drawing metal filings to it as, as I, each year as I grow older. And my, so my identity started off with a core that included such things as being the firstborn of four, being female, uh, being American, being African-American, and the other piece of my identity coming from my mother's side. My mother was half Puerto Rican and half Italian. So that was very much a part of the, the magnet core piece of my identity as well. And then the filings that have been drawn to it over the years have included things that came from my education, came from the travels that I have done, and that have come from the work that I've had and all the people that I have met through all of those sources. The memories that I have, and I've shared so many of them with you today, thank you for that opportunity, um, are definitely things that have added to my identity and have um, been something that people remember about me. The memories that I share with them are things that they take away and that um, they attribute to the, the Grace Angela that they have come to know. In terms of eternity, boy, that's a big word. <laughs> um, and it's a deep word. But things such as going to Georgia and walking down that dusty red clay road with a gorgeous golf course green on the left, the big house on the right, and the other, uh, the other wooden house on the right with the porch door that smacked. Boy, there was eternity there, and that's in me too. So I, I think Professor Gunn had a, a very profound way of looking at identity that identity, memory, and eternity. That's very profound. It is. It's extraordinary. Um, and, you know, that was his core. As a, as a playwright, as a filmmaker, that was his core. Mm -hmm. But your core, who are the parents, therefore, who were able to launch you on this trajectory? The fact that you were in a private school, that allowed you to go to Greece, the fact that, you know, you have this wealth of experience in travel, your family traveling. What did your mother do? My mother was a social worker, a teacher, a civil rights worker, um, somebody who was extraordinarily curious and followed up on that curiosity. She was a spiritualist. She was a missionary at one point. She was a modern dancer with Martha Graham. She was extraordinary. Uh, she was extraordinary. And interestingly, um, at one point when she was in graduate school and looking into her heritage, she told me that her, grand, her grandmother, my great-grandmother, who um, I knew she did not die until even after I had graduated from college, so I knew her for a good portion of my life, she had told my mother, I am descended from Taino Indians. And my mother never knew what 
that who they were or what that was until she was doing some research in graduate school and discovered that culture. And certain, then suddenly my mother really had an opening into her ancestry or at least her heritage, even if she wasn't able to identify actual ancestors, it opened up a whole new piece of her identity and, um, and her memory and now her eternity. And who is your father? My father was also a social worker, a civil rights activist, an ordained minister um, my father was also an informal counselor, I would say, even beyond the pastoral counseling of his profession. He has always been someone that people trust and pour their troubles out to and seek advice from. Both my parents were extraordinary parents as well um, as a couple. Um, I'll give one quick example. As children, whenever we needed anything signed for school, it could be a, a permission slip to go on a class trip or if somebody was going to somebody else's house to play, that there were different pickup arrangements. My parents insisted that we had both parents' signatures on that slip. They never wanted us to be able to pair, pit one against the other. And they also wanted to make sure that each parent knew exactly what was going on with their children. And that's the kind of couple uh, they were as parents. <laughs> wow. And I, and I'm sure the, it made it, uh, it changed also probably the way your teachers looked at you because they realized that this was a family without equivocation that was prioritizing their children. Uh, you started to say something. Yeah, uh, and you'll either find room for it or not, but I'll tell it to you anyway because I want you to know it. When I was, when I started the school at age four in pre-kindergarten, my mother had uh, my my mother had a parent-teacher conference, which of course is is very common. The teacher said to my mother. You know, we do have some concerns about Angela. She's, she's enjoying school, she's wonderful in the classroom, but we do, we do have some concerns. And my mother asked what the concerns were. And the teacher responded, there were concerns that perhaps I had a self-confidence problem. And also maybe I wasn't always as truthful as I should be. My mother was aghast. She was a, a relatively traditional and strict mother. Uh, so she asked for examples. And the teacher said, well, I'll give you one quick example. There was an altercation in the doll corner. And, you know, I'm not sure exactly who did what, but they're only four years old. You get each of them to tell their side of the story and eventually you can figure it out. So I called each girl over one at a time to ask what had happened. And when I called your daughter over and explained to her, nobody's getting in trouble. There's no punishment involved. I just need to know what happens so that we can fix things so it doesn't happen again. Tell me your side of the story. And your daughter just looked down at the floor and she wouldn't respond. And I explained to her again, you, you needn't be afraid. You're not tattling on anyone. You're not snitching. I just need the facts so that I can figure out. And in fact, at that point, I pretty much knew what had happened, but you know, I wanted each girl to be able to give me her side of the story, but your daughter wouldn't respond. And my mother said, well, as far as I'm concerned, she did the right thing. In my household, children do not look adults straight in the eye. That is disrespectful. And you have essentially already accused her of doing something in her four-year-old mind and she's hoping that by, oh, by, uh, she's hoping that by acting obediently and correctly as a little girl, looking down and staying silent and not contradicting you because children don't contradict adults, that you will go easy on her. So as far as I'm concerned, she did everything right. And there began the cultural clash <laughs> between my teachers, the, the school, and the way that my mother was raising us. And eventually they did meet halfway, but starting 
from day one, there were some cultural things that the school needed to learn about how a Caribbean mother was raising her child. Seems like starting from day one, that Caribbean American mother and African Dutch American father put their children on quite a road to discovery, to exploration, and to success. And in the end, there is a common thread with all of my careers and also with my identity, and that is matchmaking, if you will. Well, speaking of connecting uh, I'm inter- and matchmaking, I'm thinking of the matchmaking that brought us together so that we met through Historic Huguenot Street and to find that we both have family connections that somehow bring us back to the Dutch uh, colonists of Historic Huguenot Street, mine being because my grandfather was from St. Eustatius, which was an island in the Caribbean colonized by the Dutch. In that sense of connection, I had been asked to interpret the identity, memory, eternity of a young woman enslaved in 1703. From the marriage and baptism records of the old Dutch church in Kingston, New York, September 5th, 1703. After profession of her faith, Rachel received the sacrament of holy baptism, aged 17 years. Besides the points required of her in the formula of baptism, she also promised the congregation to serve her mistress, Catherine Cotton, faithfully and diligently until the death of her mistress, and after that to serve her master, Jean Cotton, and afterwards she shall be at liberty and free. That is all that is known of me, a name that is not mine, written in a language foreign to mine. How will my mother ever find me if I do not hold to my name? I have been stolen from my country, stolen from my mother and my father. I have been stolen from me. But I have in me what they cannot see to steal. I have memory. Who am I? I am my mother's child. I am my father's child. I am Isoke. I am my name, a satisfying gift from God. Isoke. I was born in 1686 in the village of Esaka, one of the most beautiful places in the world, a province called Eboe in the kingdom of Benin. That is my home. I remember. I am home. As the youngest of the children, I am, of course, the greatest favorite with my mother. She takes particular pains to form my mind. I am always with her. Not much longer, though, my father has been talking about me with the other Ambrenche, elders and chiefs of our village. I am to be married. Not too soon, for sure. I am just a child. But one day, there will be a great feast. My bridegroom declares that I am his wife and that no other person is to pay addresses to me. I return to my mother's nighthouse. A week later, my parents deliver me to my bridegroom. They tie round my waist a cotton string of the thickness of a goose quill, which none but married women are permitted to wear. I am considered completely his wife. The dowry is given to us as a married pair. And there is another celebration. We are almost a nation of dancers, musicians, and poets. Every great event of rejoicing is celebrated in public dances to celebrate the occasion. I remember. I am 17. I remember I am not home. I remember how I came to be here. One day, when all our people were gone out to their works as usual, and only I and my brother were left to mind the house. Two men and a woman got over our walls and in a moment seized us both. They stopped our mouths, ran off with us into the nearest wood. They put me into a large sack. The next day my brother and I were separated while in each other's arms. 
when I arrived at the sea, a slave ship was waiting for its cargo. I was handled and tossed up by some of the crew to see if I were sound. White men with horrible looks, red faces and loose hair. Black people of every description were chained together, dejected and sorrowful. I no longer doubted of my fate. Down under the decks I received the loathsomeness of the stench. I was not able to eat. The white men held me fast by the hands and feet and flogged me severely. Could I have got over the nettings, I would have jumped over the side. But I could not. I remember. Even this I must never forget to remember. Today I am baptized. O oh, ye Christians, might not an African ask you, Did you learn these ways from your God, who says unto you, Do unto all men as you would men should do unto you? Is it not enough that we are torn from our country to toil for your luxury and lust of gain? I remember. I am a boy. In my religion, we believe our dear friends and relations passed on guard us from bad spirits. Before eating, we put some small portion of meat and pour some of our drink on the ground for the spirits. My mother used to take me with her to her mother's tomb a small thatched house. There she made her libations. This is our way. This is how we honor our spirits and our people. When my mother is among the spirits and I am so far away, who will tend her tomb? When I am no more, who among the spirits will know how to find me and take me home? I remember. I must remember. I remember my mother I remember my father. I remember Esaka. I remember to know. I am Isoke. Grace Angela Henry, thank you for being with us today. Janice, it has been a pleasure. For more about Grace Angela and the music heard on today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. From the studios of WJFF, post-production, Jason Dole. The Janice Adams Show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.